So we are in the second week, the second commandment of this series we're calling How to Be Human. And the series is really born out of the idea of being audacious enough to believe that the commandments uh, are not meant to be just rules and uh, do's and do's, do nots, but that the commandments are actually better understood as invitations to a great life. And uh, we, we kicked off last week by, by throwing out the idea that the phrase 10 commandments actually never appears in the Bible. Uh, God never says there's 10. We just happen to come up with 10, but uh, some Jewish rabbis come up with 13. Uh, and he also never really calls, the, the Hebrew word is not really a word for commandment, it's really better understood as a word or just instruction. But we're taking them as the idea of like, what if these words and these instructions were actually a way to experience an amazing life? What if God actually has our best in mind? Instead of just saying, hey, here's some, some commandments and some rules, like don't, don't do this and do that. Uh, last week, we started off by talking about the first commandment, and I, I threw out the idea that a lot of streams of Christianity put today's uh, instruction and last week's instruction together. So you might have grown up hearing, uh, don't have any other gods before me, and then don't make an idol as the first commandment. But not every, not every stream of Christianity takes those two commandments and unifies them. So we're separating them. Last week, we talked about don't have any other gods before God and what that means, why he might tell us to do that. Today, we're going to look at sort of idol, don't, don't have any other gods plus. So he says, don't, don't just not have any other gods before me. He says, never make an image of me, not even of another God. He says, don't make an image of me. Don't fashion one from yourself. And then just, I want to just kind of address this right out of the bat. A lot of people get really stuck on sort of the, the consequences that he says, oh, you know, I am going to punish the children for, for their parents' sins down to the third and fourth generation. Most biblical scholars would say, listen, first of all, what God's trying to say there is how strongly he's taking this commandment. And we, didn't get, we shouldn't get caught up on the math, you know, of like, oh, there's three or four generations that God punishes a sin. Really, you should look at first, God's saying, this is a serious thing. And then second, the idea of contrast. God says, listen, I'm going to punish three or four generations, but I'm going to show love to a thousand. And so when you're looking at something like this in the Bible, most scholars would say, focus on the contrast. He's saying three to four generations versus a thousand generations. And so we're not going to deal with like, oh, okay, what does God say if we don't do this? He's going to, oh, there's a punishment thing. I'm just telling you, that's what most scholars would say. God is trying to say, this is how important the commandment is. So um, here's how we're going to approach it. Uh, we're going to start off by just um, throwing out the idea that the God of the Bible has a tension with being presented visually. The God of the Bible has a tension with being experienced as from a seeing point of view. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through a whole bunch of scriptures all throughout the Bible that illustrate this tension. Before we start that, though, I want to actually throw out a, a great concise summary statement by a guy named Paul, who is an early church leader. He wrote a lot of the New Testament he wrote a letter to a church in a place called Corinth, and he just threw this uh, sentence out. We live, the church, God's people, we live by faith and not by sight. Anybody ever heard this? We live by faith and not by sight. So 
Paul's saying very clearly, there is some kind of contrast between faith and sight. He's like, we live one way, not this other way. And there is a tension in the Bible between how God wants us to experience him from a visual point of view versus some other way of experiencing him. So with that in mind, um, I'm actually gonna start just walking through this list of scriptures. There's gonna be a lot of them, but I just need to show you how God, uh, ex- how God interacts with his people over the course of the Bible. So the first one is Genesis 32. A guy named Jacob, he actually uh, is wrestling with a, a figure. And God asks this figure, tell me your name. And the figure says, why do you ask for my name? And he blessed Jacob there. And then Jacob named the place Peniel because I have seen God face to face. So this actually is a visual encounter with God. Jacob somehow, some way, don't know how, don't exactly understand how it plays itself out, but he sees and experiences God face to face. All right, next scripture. Book of Exodus, where we are at with the Ten Commandments. Moses, God used to speak to Moses face to face, like two people talking to each other. So again, I don't know exactly how this looked. I don't know exactly how it played itself out. But the scripture says that God and Moses, they're sitting down and they're just hanging out, talking just like two people would. Next scripture, another guy, Isaiah, who is a prophet. In Isaiah 6, he writes in the year of King Uzziah's death, He just flat out tells you, I saw the Lord sitting on a high and exalted throne, the edges of his robe filling the temple. Isaiah sees God. This, these are visual encounters with God. But I said there's a tension. As best we can tell, these are the only people in the Bible that would ever even claim to have seen God visually, face to face. There's a lot more on the other side of the coin of like how God doesn't want to necessarily be defined by a visual experience. So starting to go through these scriptures, first first scripture here, next slide. Then the Lord said to Moses, Moses and God again, I'm about to come to you in a thick cloud. This is one of God's favorite ways to uh, encounter people, a thick cloud in order so that the people will, what's the text say? Hear me talking with you so that they will always trust you. And a little bit of a spoiler alert, I think there's something to be noticed there about the relationship between hearing and trusting versus seeing and trusting. Paul says we we live by what? Faith and not by sight. There's a hard contrast there. And then God sort of says, listen, I'm going to appear you in a cloud. If people hear me, there's a greater degree of trust involved there. Next slide. This is Exodus uh, 33. Still Moses and God. Moses says, God, please show me your glorious presence. When uh, in the Old Testament, God's presence often has a physical visual manifestation. So when Moses says, show me your glorious presence, show me your glory, it would be, a lot of times in the Old Testament, you would see it. But listen to what God says. I love this. God says, "Uh, I'll make all my goodness pass in front of you. What does Moses ask for? He asks to see his glory, his presence. God says, I'll tell you what, I will make my goodness pass in front of you, which I have no idea what that looks like. 
Moses asks for something visual. God gives him a character attribute. And I'll proclaim before you the name, the Lord. I will be kind to whomever I wish to be kind, and I will have, have compassion to whomever I wish to be compassionate. But, and here it is, what's God say? You can't see my face, because why? No one can see God's face and live. There's a tension. Somehow Jacob does it. Somehow Isaiah does it. Somehow Moses does it. But there's a lot more in the Bible that says, listen, be careful about seeking God visually. Next slide. This is still Exodus, uh, still the same passage. So God says, Listen, here's a place near me where you will stand beside the rock. And as my glorious presence passes by, I'll set you in a gap of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And I love that the Hebrew there is evocative of God actually reaching out with the palm of his hand and covering Moses up with the palm of his hand so that Moses will live, right? Then uh, I'll take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face won't be visible. Next slide. This is a, a, from the book of Psalms, praise, prayers. God made darkness cloak him. There's that darkness thing again. The, his covering was dark water and dense cloud. God says, listen, there are times the Bible says when God, like you experience God as a cloud, as a mystery. Next book, uh, next slide. Also the book of Psalms, clouds and thick darkness. Again, they surround God. His throne is built on righteousness and justice. I, I interact with people all the time. You know, they come into a place like this and they're looking for God. And they say, How can, I want to find God. I want to know what God is like. And I love those. Uh, I love those questions. I love those people. I love walking with people through faith. And we encounter so many great things about God together. But for most of them, I say, listen, there's going to come a time when you're going to enter the cloud. There's going to come a time when you're going to know a lot of things about God but sooner or later, because God says he covers himself in a dark cloud, you're going to enter the cloud and it becomes mysterious. And it becomes like, I can't see God anymore. It's like it's a, you're in the right place. Next slide. Book of 1 Kings. Listen, this is, if you've ever led worship on stage, this is like the worship leader's like dream, right? Like, uh, so this is the temple. The priests left the holy place and uh, the cloud filled the temple. God's presence come into, comes into the temple. The cloud comes in and the priests were unable to carry out their duties due to the cloud because God's glory filled the Lord's temple. Look, if you're a worship leader, you're like, oh man, I get to knock off early today, go get a bagel or something because God's glory is so thick in this place. And then Solomon says, the king, the Lord said that he would live where? In a dark cloud. There's a tension between saying, what, what can we see about God and know versus God saying, listen, you're going to wander into the cloud sometime. You're not always going to see everything because quite frankly, that's not the biblical way God is known. So if, uh, if we move to the New Testament, um, first of all, the guy named Paul, the, the church leader, he, he is uh, in Athens uh, and he's talking to the people of, of Athens in Acts chapter seven. And it looks like this. He's talking to these leaders. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made with human hands. So again, that idea of like crafting something, God says, don't make an image with your hands. Paul says, look, God doesn't live in a temple that's made by human hands. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything. He is the one who gives life, breath, and everything else. Next slide. 
Paul goes on and he says, he made the nations so they will seek him. God's not far away from any of us. In him we live and move and exist. Paul says, listen, everything that you experience in life is somehow bound up in God. That's about as ambiguous as you can get. But then he says this, listen, as God's offspring, we have no need to imagine that the divine being is like a gold, silver, or stone image. Paul says he's bigger than that. He's more mysterious. He's, you, can't, you can't boil him down to just an image that's made. Uh, the same guy, Paul, also wrote, writes this to a church. This kind of a, puts a little twist on it. He says, ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood. How? Through the things God made. So he says, listen, you may not ever see God because God says no one can see him face to face. You want to get a little glimpse of what God looks like? Start looking around at what God has made. And if you're a nature person and, you, and your heart elevates a little bit and your soul uh, go, elevates a little bit, like when you're out in nature, when you see the mountains or the ocean, like I know who I'm talking to. Come on, say amen, right? That's seeing God and what he's made in the beauty of creation. Now, Things get really interesting when a guy named Jesus comes on the scene. Because even though we have this Old Testament tradition of like God lives in a dark cloud, Jesus is another thing entirely. So Paul writes to another church and he says, ah, Jesus is actually the image of the invisible God. The Son is the image of the invisible God. So this is a significant change. Because now Paul says, that God that, that dwells in a cloud and mystery sometimes, you know what, you want to know what he looks like? Look at Jesus. And so those same people that come to me at E3 and they say, I want to know, uh, help me investigate God. Uh, I started reading the Bible, Genesis 1. I'm like, close the Bible. Turn to Matthew 1 or Mark 1 or the Gospels, the stories of Jesus because Scripture tells us, you want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. There's still attention. You're not supposed to necessarily see God's face and live, but you want to know a lot about God? Look at Jesus, read his stories. Look at his heart and the way he, the way he beats a, a heart of love for people. Jesus, uh, just so you know, he, he backs Paul up, thankfully. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, uh, John 12, Jesus shouts, whoever believes in me doesn't believe just in me, but in the one who sent me, whoever sees me sees who? So Jesus says, listen, if you're looking at me, you're looking at this unseen God. And then two chapters later in the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking to one of his disciples. Philip asks him, the disciple asks him, Lord, show us the Father, that's God. Show us God. And Jesus replies, don't you know me, Philip, after all this time? He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. So that's the biblical tension laying out of like in the Old Testament, especially God's, a, he's in the clouds. He's in a cloud of darkness. He's a mystery. Jesus comes along and you're like, okay, you can know a lot about God through Jesus, but what do you do with this commandment? What do you do with this? God said, don't, it's not just enough to not have any other gods before me or beside me. Don't even make an image of me. Why? Well, 
um, do a little context work. We're going to do a little history work. You see, remember that God's people, uh, the, Jew, the Jewish people, like all around them are, are cultures and other people with visible gods. Every culture around them in the ancient Near East has gods who you can point to that were crafted and made by human hands. So why don't we get to know them? Okay. So this is the God, this is an image of the God Baal or Baal, B-A-A-L in the Bible. He is like, man, this, this guy uh, creates more trouble for God's people. They keep running after him. He's a, he's a, he's a war God and a God of thunder. Um, so let me show you another, uh, another ancient Near Eastern God. This is Hadad. He is also a God of thunder, thunder God, war God. He's being carried there by some Assyrian troops. Um, show you another visible God all around God's people. This is Asherah. She's a fertility goddess, often portrayed as a mother, uh, a woman. Um, next slide. This is Marduk and Enki. And I have no idea what they do but they do have glorious beards. They're hipster gods. So all around God's people, all around God's people are people with visible gods. All around. And God says, don't make anything like that for me. Don't make anything like that for me. You don't need it. By the way, um, when, when you get to Jesus' time, this doesn't change. Because let me show you what it looks like in Jesus' time. This is a Roman coin from the era of uh, the first century. The, the front says, says Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. The tails side, if you will, says Deus Julius. Augustus Caesar, divine son of Julius Caesar. This is what a visible God looks like in Jesus' world. Because this is Augustus Caesar claiming to be a God. So the Jewish people look at that and they're like, that is an image, a graven image crafted that represents something other than God. It's an idol. So all around God's people, not just uh, in the Ten Commandments era, but in Jesus' era, visible gods. And God says, listen, don't craft anything visible. Real quick, um, Sunday school time. Where have God's people just been set free from? Egypt. Egyptians, visible gods. They have their own set. So listen, uh, God's people have been enslaved in Egypt anywhere from 100 to 430 years. They go into Egypt worshiping Yahweh, one God. But can you imagine what it's like as a slave for 100 to 400 years being told, oh, no, these are the guys that are in power. These are the guys who control the fate of the world. And so when God shows up and says, well, let me, let me just actually deal with all of these gods and let me actually show you who's really in charge. So God sets his people free, kind of symbolically defeating all the Egyptian gods. And then God says, listen, you've been down the road of like crafting pictures and idols. He said, like, actually, you don't need anything to represent me. And let me, let me, let me, this is one of the reasons I think this is important. Let's say that I declare this music stand to be a God. 
Crazier things have happened. And I say, okay, guys, like, that is a God. That is the God of whatever we'll call the God of music, whatever. Um, there, is a, there is a rootedness and a connectedness. I can point and I can say, man, that's my, that's my God right there. That's the God. He's right over there and he's, he's skinny and kind of weird. One of the things that happens when God says, listen, don't make anything visible. When you have a God that transcends anything visible, you know what, you know what that God can do? He can show up anywhere, anytime, in any form. He's not limited to a temple. He's not limited to just one mode of operation. This God can be anywhere, including with a bunch of slaves that need to be set free. And so God is basically saying, listen, there is a limitation that you're putting on me when you make a representation of me. You're making me too small. When God is just free to just be God, to be mysterious, he is ultimately free to be wherever he wants to be and wherever he needs to be. The other thing that happens is, uh, you see, those gods, because they represent like who was the Egyptians saying, these are the gods that are in charge. You know what that represents for, for God's people? It represents their past. God says, if you want to make a visible God like everybody else, that's actually the old way of doing things. That's actually the old way of being in the world. And God's like, I'm trying to set you free from all that. So why craft something that just reminds you of your past? The fact that God says, listen, don't make an image is basically him, in a way he's saying, embrace something new. And guess what? There's always a new thing coming. And as soon as you make something that says, oh, this is God, there will be a human tendency to kind of dwell in the past instead of embracing the future. And God is always a God of the future. He's always looking to do something new. But I think the most interesting way, the interesting thing that this says about God and says about us uh, has to do with uh, some, some quite personal and particular science. You see, uh, human beings are what we call sight-dominant. Anybody ever heard this about human beings? We're sight-dominant. 30 to 40% of our brain is taken with processing visual information. Other creatures are not sight-dominant. They might be uh, hearing-dominant. But this means that we are creatures of looking. We are creatures who habitually process information by sight over and above other senses. And that, I think God is trying to say, I've made you that way. I've gifted you as, a, uh, as these beautiful visual you know, ways to process information, but you need to be careful about it. Because that sight can actually lead you astray. And uh, let me show you, I'm just going to kind of show you how this plays itself out. Um, there's a great movie that we watched um, it came out a few years ago called Moneyball. Any of you ever seen the movie Moneyball? I mentioned this earlier. I, can you guys just tell me what movies you watch? Because evidently every movie that I watch, everyone's like, not heard it. Hang got it. Um, I don't know. Uh, anyway, it's a great movie. It's a, it's a true story. It's about a, a guy who managed the Oakland A's. When he took over the Oakland A's, they were a very cash poor ball club. And he knew he couldn't compete with the big, the big clubs, the, the, the Yankees, the Red Sox of the world. And so he had to try to figure out a way to get this team to win. 
and they started to look at statistics in a very deep way. How can we get, how can we win with less money with players that aren't big money players? And there's this great scene where he's interacting with, with his staff and they're evaluating people that they want to sign. And it's one of the most brilliant uh, demonstrations of how our eyes will not tell us the true story of reality. All right, so there's a few clips, and I'm just going to kind of roll part of them and unpack them. So let's roll the first one. He's got a beautiful swing, right, Barry? The ball explodes off his bat. He throws the club head at the ball, and when he connects, it, he drives it. It pops off the bat. You can hear it all over the ballpark. A lot of pop coming off the bat. It's effort. If he's a good hitter, why doesn't he hit good? He is a good hitter. Minor leaguer. He'll be, he'll be ready. Yeah, so he's going to be a good hitter when we put him up against big league guards. Could be a great hitter. I don't think so. This kid this needs some at-bats. If you give him 400 at-bats, he's going to get better. He can play. He's hit everywhere along the line. One of our guys. If he's a good hitter, why doesn't he hit good? Because Billy's looking at the statistics and he's saying, I'm looking at the truth of the matter and the guy has a lousy on-base percentage. And they're like, no, no, he's a baseball guy. Oh, he's, he looks like a baseball guy. He's got a great swing. All the visual stuff is just kind of coming at, he looks great. Oh man, he's got a, ma a marvelous swing. But there's another reality. And he's going like, I know what you're telling me, you see, but it ain't true. It gets, uh, it gets, pushed a little bit more in this next clip. So just roll that now. Okay, let's move on. Artie, who do you like? I, I like Perez. He's uh, got a classic swing. He's real clean stroke. I don't know. Well, Can't hit the curveball. Well, there's some work to be done. I'll admit that. Yeah, but there is. Uh, he's noticeable. Got an ugly girlfriend. What's that mean? Ugly girlfriend means no confidence. Okay. So he's like, oh, I like Perez. He's real noticeable. And he's like, but he can't hit the curve. Well, I know. And then, yeah, you get the bizarre, but he has an ugly girlfriend. Ugly girlfriend means no confidence. And like, we laugh about it, but how many times have your eyes led you to, to make a decision that you're just like, whoa, is that a bad decision? You were visually dominant creatures, right? And we will see something just like a squirrel notices, you know, so, oh, I got to go over there. That's a great idea. And then we find out, oh, no, that's not, that's not a great idea. There was a reality that I did not see. And, uh, and then there's one last clip that just pushes it even higher. So watch this. This is the eye candy test. He's got the looks. He's ready to play the part. He just needs to get some playing time. I'm just saying, his girlfriend is a six. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't catch it, the guy, the, he, he digs in. He's like, no, he... Uh, let me be clear. He, the guy, when it starts and he says, passes the eye candy test, he's not talking about the girlfriend. He's talking about the player. He says he passes the eye candy test. He looks great. He's ready to play the part. And then the other dude's like, he's not giving up either. Yeah, but his girlfriend's only a six. <laughs> Our eyes can, can lead us into realities that aren't, that aren't accurate. And God says, don't craft something that you can just look at all the time because there's a bigger reality at play here. Now, uh, before, before we kind of head for home, I just want to draw this out uh, another kind of fun but very, very compelling way. Uh, there is, there is a, an illusion or something called the McGurk effect. Anybody ever heard of the McGurk effect? All right, this I'm going to let you off. This is a movie thing. 
So uh, we're going to show a clip. Uh, it's going to be narrated by a very pleasant-sounding British lady. Um, and, and what the McGurk effect is, is it demonstrates how visual information will override other senses. So what you're going to hear is you're going to hear a, a guy saying the word ba, B-A-A. And what it sets up is that as long as the, as long as the visual information has his lips saying ba, you will hear ba. But as soon as the visual information has him saying fa, F-A-A, you will no longer hear ba. You will hear fa, even though the audio information has not changed. I don't know how it will work in this room. I can tell you I've done this 18 times or so, and every single time I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so just roll this. Ba. Concentrate first ba, on the right of the screen. Ba, ba, now to the left ba, of the screen. Ba, ba, the illusion occurs ba, because what you are seeing clashes ba, with what ba, you are hearing. Ba. In the illusion, um, what we see overrides what we hear. So um, the mouth movements we see as we look at a face can actually influence what we believe we're hearing. If we close our eyes, we actually hear the sound as it is. If we open our eyes, we actually see how the mouth movements can influence what we're hearing. Go home and Google it. It will blow your mind. God says don't make any images. Don't craft images for yourselves. And I believe ultimately become it, it in a way, you can understand that as him saying, listen, you're sight-dominant people, and as soon as you create an image, you will be drawn to it. Your eyes will go back to it. And God is simply saying, I believe there's an invitation to know me in a deeper, more mysterious, but deeper and more compelling and more life-giving way. And this becomes very, very important uh, for us when we are like uh, the video that we saw earlier where we have things that we believe to be true about ourselves. We have titles that we have labeled. We have tapes that play in our minds. And those are the things that we see. You know, these are, these are some of my journals. Uh, I write, you know, uh, every year, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less. I have years and years of journals. They represent uh, basically what God has done or not done in my life, where I've struggled, where I've succeeded. And they're great gifts. But even a journal can become an idol. If I just keep looking back at that thing and saying, uh, this is what defines me. The good things in that book, the bad things in that book, those are the things that just define me. And I would ask you, like, maybe, like, what are the words that define you? What are the things that you see, like, over your portrait? Was it loser? Is it winner? Is it you know, no faith, is it promiscuity, is it hated, is it never good enough, is it, what is it, what is it, what is it? And it is very, very easy to make that actually into an idol and to just say, that's what I see all the time. God says, listen, there's another way to live. And it's, start, and it's based on faith and faith is uncomfortable because you've got to turn away from the things that are easy to see because you're, oh, you're, you're visually dominant. But God says, if you step into the cloud and into the mystery, you can step away from, from that reality. 
some of us need to even step away from good realities because God moved in some way in our life that was powerful 10 years ago and he's still waiting for us to move away from that thing. Even good things can become idols if all we ever do is just look at them and go, man, God was so good back there. The same guy that saw God in, in, uh, uh, in, the, in the throne room, on his, uh, in, the, in the temple and on his throne, Isaiah, he writes uh, this. Uh, God speaks through Isaiah later on in the book, Isaiah 43. And God says, bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called. There's that, there's that thing again. The tension between hearing Versus seeing. And God says, I have called you by my name. And I created you for my glory. And some of us need to separate ourselves from the visual items so we can hear that we are named by God. And I don't have time to go into it, but let me just tell you, friends, God calls you beloved. God calls you dearly loved. God calls you Son and daughter, even if every single earthly parent has rejected you. There is a God who calls you his own with a love that cannot be shaken. And he's saying, listen, you've crafted some idols maybe, but there's a deeper reality I want to call you into. And then he goes on. And this is how we'll kind of close God says, listen, don't remember the prior things. Don't remember them. Don't ponder ancient history. But God, I've always been this way. God, this is always how you've worked in my life. God says, no, no, no. Guess what? I'm doing what? A new thing. I'm doing a new thing. Even now it sprouts up. Don't you recognize it? I'm making a way in the desert. Anybody ever been in the desert? Maybe you're there right now. That's exactly the place God says new things happen. But if you're just looking at the idol that you've crafted, you might miss the new thing that's just standing there. And God's saying, listen, it's there. Just step away from it. Just step away from this thing that you've crafted. It involves a little mystery. It involves a little faith. But where did we start? Paul tells the church, we live by what? And not by? By sight. So the invitation here, guys, it's not just a rule to say, don't ever try to draw God. God says, no, the deeper thing is like, listen, don't try to hem me in. I'm bigger. I'm more mysterious. And quite frankly, when you, when you create something that does that, you will always be drawn to go backwards and not forwards. And I am a God of the new. And I, for one, am really, really grateful about that. Uh, you guys see over there, we're, we're crafting this art piece, um, assembling it week by week. Last week, uh, we talked about Yahweh. This week is uh, what will go up there for next week is that God knows my name. He knows it. And we're called by that name.
And we're called to hear it, listen for it, and not just live by the sight of what we see in our, in our heads when, when we're quiet. I'd like to invite you guys to stand up. Um, you guys remember last week I introduced the idea that I'm going to craft the commandments as a, as a creed, which is a statement of belief. And as we build, as we go through the commandments, we're going to read them together. Just as if you're, if you're interested in recovering some humanity, like this is just a way to kind of say, this is what we're going to believe together about these commandments and about who we are. So we're going to bring it up there on the screens. Let's read this together. The first two commandments. Yahweh, you are our God of grace and mercy. You forgive our sins and invite us into your kingdom. We desire no other gods before you. We will not rely on our sight and our senses in order to follow you. We will follow you even though it sometimes means walking by faith every step of the way.